today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 23. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Why, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have but one purpose, and they will each be re uh, rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not declare yourselves, if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. It's the word of the Lord. My name is Phil. I'm the Associate Minister here. It's lovely to see you this morning. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Our Father God, we pray this morning as we look at your word that you would grow our confidence in you, in your gospel, and in your church. Amen. Now, Corinth was like London on steroids, basically. Corinth was London on steroids. It was a place of great wealth, of sexual liberation, and a place that was absolutely in love with celebrity. In Corinth, things had to wow for them to work. And so the church that Paul's writing to in 55 AD or so has got a real problem because they're wondering how on earth will our church grow 
How on earth will the kingdom of Jesus Christ spread in Corinth when the message that we have to offer is so pathetic? When we, our, our sales pitch is, come and, and, and follow and trust for eternal life, a Galilean peasant who was tortured to death on a Roman cross. It's not a great sales pitch in a place like Corinth. And so they attempted to compensate for the weak message by turning to really impressive ministers. Weak message, well, okay, can we, can we please have some really impressive messengers then instead? Now, it's a temptation we probably face too, because look, if we're honest, most of us think it would be a whole lot easier to invite our family, our friends to church, and our evangelism would be much more effective. People would be much more likely to turn and put their trust in Jesus Christ if things were just a bit more impressive. You know, if the, if the building was, was more beautiful, the, the worship was more like the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, and, and the ministers were like those impressive orators from the TED Talks who, who have those great stories and statistics and never need to look at their notes, and they're just amazing, and instead you get me. <laughs> and the truth is, we look around at the sheer ordinariness of church, And it shakes our confidence that the gospel message we have to offer can be as extraordinary as we say it is. Well, 1 Corinthians 3 is a reminder that it is okay to have an ordinary church with very ordinary ministers because God is at work through all of us, all of us, every one of us here, with his extraordinary power. And it is God who grows the church. That's what Paul's going to tell us this morning. It is God who grows the church. Okay, um, three points for you. Firstly, uh, God grows churches, ministers are just servants. That'll help us uh, work our way through the passage. Firstly, God grows churches, ministers are just servants. Chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, You're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Now, the Corinthians are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. They're real, genuine Christians. But they're also, here we learn, immature, worldly, and unspiritual. They're, verse 3, still infants. Paul's saying, look, I founded the church five years ago, and you have not grown a bit since then. Now, the soundproof um, box up there is a creche, the parental panic room. It's a a place where you can take uh, babies up, and uh, they can have a scream, or parents can have a scream, I suppose, too, if if you feel you need to during the service. And if you volunteer to serve in the creche, which is a wonderful thing to do, You'll find uh, all sorts of uh, babies from very, very newborn up to almost toddlers um, playing around up there. But it would be rather odd if you went in there on a Sunday morning and found a 20-year-old lying on their back, sort of sticking fingers in their mouth and screaming in their onesie and, and, and needing their nappy changed. It just, but that's what the church in Corinth is. It's an adult in nappies. They're just not grown. And the proof Paul has for their immaturity is that they're dividing over which human leader they follow. If you flick back to chapter 1, verse 10, you'll see that Paul first raised the issue there. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree with one another. 
Verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. And he raises it again here. Verse 3, you're still worldly. There's jealousy and quarreling among you. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Now, Paul is a good guy. Clearly, he's the apostle writing the letter, and Apollos is a fabulous preacher. We meet him in Acts 19, and we're told he's a brilliant communicator of the gospel. He preaches with real power, and lots of people cannot, cannot resist his arguments, and they turn to follow Jesus. So the danger here is not a church that's following false teachers at this point, It's not a church that's trusting false teachers. It's a church that's trusting too much in human good teachers. Now, it should be obvious that focusing on their favorite teacher is going to sow division and quarrels. Verse 3 tells us that. But actually, Paul's main point here is much bigger. He says, when you stress which human leader you prefer, which Bible study leader, which preacher is your favorite... It actually stops God getting the glory he deserves, and it stops you growing in your faith. Look at verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? They're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. There is a very pointed preposition in the middle of verse 5. Can you see it? Here's the word through. Paul's having to to remind them, I preach to you, so that through me, you might believe in Jesus Christ. You're not to put your trust in me, the preacher, Paul says. You you trust through me in Jesus. Ministers, Christian authors, they're just servants, a great blessing, but only men and women, nothing more than flesh and blood. And look, we grow as Christians We develop as Christians, we become mature as Christians as we know Christ more. But at Corinth, they're not growing because they're not growing in their knowledge of Christ, they're growing in their attachment to particular ministers. They're ignoring the Christ that Paul and Paulus preach about to focus on Paul and Apollos. And he gives an illustration to to show what he means. Uh, Verses 6 to 9. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. It's a humbling illustration because farming is not a glamorous profession. Uh, Who here can think of a famous farmer? Old MacDonald? I mean, the the closest you probably get is Norman Borlaug, but he's more of a scientist than a farmer. So verse 5, God assigns us with gifts and the ministries that all of us have. And verse 6, Paul says, look, I'm just a sower casting seeds. I planted it. That is, he preached the gospel to them. And then Apollos watered it. That is, Apollos taught them, how do you, having turned to follow Christ, how do you grow secure in your faith? How do you work out how to live as one who follows Jesus? But neither Paul nor Apollos is the one really responsible for the growth at Corinth. Now, pot plants have have made a comeback, which is a great thing for those of us who live in London and therefore don't have gardens. And we're back to the sort of 1970s. Everybody's got indoor plants everywhere. 
It would be a bit weird. We've got loads in our house at the moment, but I don't think any of them would uh, survive a tube journey. Um, so uh, we, it would be weird for me to wander around the house and say, behold, I have made life. I have grown this plant. Really? Try putting a pebble in the pot and see what happens. I can plant a seed, buy a pot plant from Ikea more likely, I, I can plant a seed, I can water it, I can put it in the sunlight, but I can't create life. Only God can do that. As a church, our goal is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we should all work hard in our different ways because all of us are to be involved in that ministry. But it is only God who can enable somebody to put their trust in Jesus. It is only God who can enable somebody to grow, mature, and confident and secure as a follower of Christ. It is God who gives the growth, not us. Now, that's not an excuse for being idle. It is no coincidence that he uses the image of a farmer. I know a couple of farmers, and they work incredibly hard. They get up before most of us go to bed, and they work incredible hours. It's not an excuse for laziness, but it is a tremendous relief. It is not down to us. It's God. It's God who grows. We don't have to try to create spiritual life. We just faithfully and persistently plant seeds, tell other people about Jesus, and we faithfully and persistently water them. That is, we keep encouraging one another from the Bible and praying for one another. Okay, what does that mean for, for us? What does this mean for us, that uh, it is God who grows churches and ministers are just servants? Well, I think there is a particular danger for us these days in the internet age, if you like, because we have access to the celebrity ministers from all over the world, right on our phones. And it's easy to shop around until we think we found the leader who is most impressive for our particular friends, whether it's the intellectual writer who can demolish any skeptical argument or the inspirational speaker who just moves people so deeply. Now, there is a huge amount we can learn from others. And you'd be a fool if you ignored the wisdom from other churches around the world. But the thing is, we're always tempted to look around and think, if only we had that minister, if only we, we followed that church's program where, where they divide things into five different ministries, starting with the letters J-E-S-U-S. -S. I mean, it just has to work. And, and we just look at these programs and these people and we think, if only we were like that, oh, everything would work. Or we think, my friend, they're only, they're only going to become a Christian if they hear this speaker. We say, I'm a piper man, or I just love Tim Keller. He's so passionate, so good at getting under the skin of culture. If you don't know who those people are, don't worry. 1 Corinthians 3 says you don't need to know who they are. But be careful, those of us who do know. Be careful that we don't give the impression that the gospel, the message of Jesus, only comes with power when it comes out of the lips of certain particular people. Or churches only grow when they, when they follow the model of this particular ministry. Or on the flip side, we can think our church services and ministers' sermons are so unimpressive. Why, why would I ever? My friends are never going to be converted. They're never going to put their trust in Jesus on the back of some person just standing at the front and explaining 1 Corinthians 3. And so we... We don't risk bringing our friends because we, 
we just don't think there's anything powerful enough about an ordinary church service. But 1 Corinthians 3 tells us the power in church comes from God, not people. It is God who grows churches, so don't worry too much about the ministers. Secondly, though, God uses human ministry, and Judgment Day will reveal the truth. Now, the image moves now from the farm to the building site, because Paul wants to teach something else. The farm image stressed that we're absolutely dependent on God. Only he can make things grow. The building image will tell us, but we have a role to play, and it's important that we play it well. He says, look, it is God who grows, but it matters that ministers have the right message and method. Because God saves people using his extraordinary power by working through ordinary people. Ordinary means, ordinary conversations. Now, the first nine verses taught them to trust God, not humans, to grow church. These verses teach God uses faithful humans to do that work. Verse 10 and 11 show us that we still have a role to play. By God's grace, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wide builder, a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Note again, the stress is all of God. By the grace God's given me, Paul's gifts, his ministry, are given by God. So he laid a foundation, verse 11, that's Jesus Christ, which means what he told us back in chapter 2, verse 2. He came to Corinth and preached Jesus Christ crucified. Trust in the death of Jesus and your sins are forgiven. Trust in the resurrection of Jesus and you have new life. He preached the gospel. And now others are ministering at the church. So he continues, verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though it's only as one escaping through the flames." He's, he's laid this foundation, teaching them to put their trust in Jesus. And he says, look, be careful. Anybody uh, building on that foundation, that is, anybody uh, helping you grow as a Christian, they need to make sure that their ministry is also grounded in teaching about Jesus Christ crucified. He says, it doesn't matter how impressive a minister sounds. It doesn't matter if your friends, your non-Christian friends, love coming to hear them. If they're not preaching Jesus Christ crucified, forget it. It's just human wisdom, and the church will not really grow. Now, I don't think we're meant to work out what the different um, building materials are meant to represent, in particular, the six different materials. It's a more general point. In the, in the context of 1 Corinthians, gold, silver, and precious stones are teaching that builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ crucified. And wood, hay, and straw, well, I think that's a teaching that appears to be Christian, but isn't grounded in Jesus Christ and him crucified, that actually it trusts in other things. It looks great now, but on judgment day it will be revealed just to be human wisdom and it will be just burned up by the fire. In 2008, there was a, there was a massive earthquake in China in, and the epicenter was in Sichuan province and over 90,000 people died, which was appalling because it was a, it's a modern country. And the buildings 
should have withstood the earthquake. So why did so many people die? Well, the answer that they used to describe it when they did the investigation was that there were tofu buildings. Tofu buildings. Now, to me, tofu tastes like something that should be used as a building material. But they weren't really using tofu bricks. Uh, what they meant by tofu buildings is buildings where the materials were just a cheap substitute for the real thing, as tofu is for meat. I don't mean to insult anybody, um, but that's, it was their phrase, not mine. The buildings, the materials they used looked like the real thing, but it was poor quality concrete. It was cheap bricks. People were amazed at how quickly and how cheaply all the buildings went up in Sichuan. But the earthquake revealed, revealed that actually the materials were just wood, hay, and straw, and they were all destroyed. And Paul pictures us coming to judgment day before the throne of Jesus Christ, and the images of us walking through a fire, a fire that reveals the reality of our lives. And he says here, look, some huge influential front cover of Christian magazine, blog followed by millions, grew a megachurch ministers. They will be exposed as wood, hay, and straw. You can imagine them high-fiving their way through the crowd up to the throne of God. Everybody knows who they are. But as they pass through the fire of judgment, nothing of their ministry is left. It's just ash. There'll be a great number of ministers on the last day exposed as all reputation and no reality. People who preached a tofu gospel. Now this has three very important things to say to us as we chew over these verses. Now firstly, the first thing he says, we're not talking about salvation here. We're not saved by doing things for Jesus, but by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, his death on the cross. That's the message. This is not this fire God judging whether someone will have eternal life. It's not God assessing whether they'll have eternal life. It's God weighing what they've done, their ministry, their work. In verse 15, they're saved, even though all their ministry is shown to have been empty. It's the first thing. It's not about salvation. Secondly, these things may not be obvious till judgment day. Hay, wood, and straw ministry looks Christian. They quote the Bible. They talk about Jesus. It's only on judgment day when the fire comes that it will be revealed that there was nothing to it. And so we need to be careful. Now, it is easy, of course, to say any church that does things differently to us, well, that's just an empty church. Wood, hay, and straw. It's just a, a tofu ministry. But on the other hand, we must not be naive. Paul writes about this and warns us of this danger because it's a real danger. We'll always face the danger ourselves and, and following others who don't abandon the gospel entirely, but just sell out to culture, doing things that, in a way which it works in our culture, but actually it's not grounded in the cross. And on judgment day, it'll be exposed as empty. God grows the church. God grows the church, but he grows it his way when we rely on his power. Well, thirdly, we can all look forward to reward. Now, chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians will teach that everybody, everybody sitting here in every church, every Christian is given the gifts necessary for the church to grow. We need everybody to be involved. Now, not all will preach and lead churches, which is the particular focus in some ways of these verses, but everybody should be involved in ministry. 
Everybody's necessary. Everybody can offer encouragement from the Bible. Everyone can lovingly correct a friend who's going astray. Everyone can pray. Every single one of us is commanded by Jesus Christ to make disciples. And so every one of us can look forward to the day when our King Jesus will give us our reward. As we come before the fire on that day, the efforts we have made prayerfully to seek to grow disciples will be revealed. And wonderfully, do you see in verse 8, it's the labor, not the success that's rewarded. And many here have worked extremely hard. Many here have given up much in the way of time and money to see the gospel grow, to see this church and churches abroad grow and flourish. And one day, almighty God, Jesus Christ, will step down off his throne and he will place a crown on your head and reward you for your ministries. It's a wonderful promise. God uses human ministry. God grows the church, but God uses human ministry and judgment day will reveal what has been done. Lastly, God will destroy the divisive because the church is his temple. These verses really, they warn us about what is at stake. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. The church is not a human institution, just another uh, special interest group. It is God's temple, his home. In other words, it's the place where God most particularly dwells. God is everywhere, but his presence is most especially, most intensively experienced in church. God is most intensely experienced in this world right here, right now, as his people gather in church. So God issues a a stern but fair warning. Destroy my church, destroy my temple, and I will destroy you. Fair enough, but what's surprising is how this church is being destroyed, verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. He's saying you're dividing over human leaders. It's just just seeking after human wisdom. It's following the ways of Corinth, the ways of this world. And and those ways don't work with God. And and what a pointless thing to, to get excited about human leaders when everything is yours. Through Christ, all is yours. So don't destroy the church with your squabbling, your division, and your pride over which leader you follow. Yeah, but why does, why does division over human leaders destroy the church? Well, because our only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ crucified. Our only hope for growth and holiness is the spirit of Christ crucified. And our only hope for maturity and wisdom is Christ crucified teaching us. And so when we, when we build on human leaders and put all our hope and our focus in them, we, we turn ourselves and others away from our only real hope, Jesus Christ crucified. And to turn from him is to turn towards destruction. I mean, think about it. Think about what happens when human leaders fail 
and when human leaders succeed in the church. What happens when human leaders fail? Now, it is always sad when a respected leader falls. Some will be feeling that keenly this week. But if we've built too much on a human leader, if we've trusted too much in them, been influenced too heavily by them, then the results can be really destructive. Rather than just being saddened and disappointed as we should be, well, it can be as if our faith is completely shaken and the foundations have gone because the earthquake reveals the building wasn't built on the rock that is Christ, but was built on the poor, shoddy foundations of trusting in a human who we'd look to. When human leaders fail, if we've built too much on them, we will be destroyed. But secondly, think about what happens when human leaders succeed. It's just as destructive, actually. When a human leader doesn't fail and remains fruitful and faithful, if we've built too much in them, it can be just as destructive because the church becomes reliant on them. The church becomes proud and thinks our way is the only way that works. Our minister is the one to look to. This author is the one who can really give you the answers. And when you trust like that, you're not trusting in Christ crucified. You start acting as if things can only grow through them. And you start seeing them as the sole source of power in the church. Eventually, though, of course, they will retire or they will die. And what happens then? Well, the church dwindles. The church loses all its life and all its power. And the church will never grow beyond the abilities of that minister because the church is not looking for the power of God, but the power of the man. And that's why the elders and the church council at this church have taken the wise decision to employ the most ordinary people they could find. Uh, So there would be no temptation for any of us to trust in us rather than Christ. It's a good thing. You want the church's growth not to be able to be explained by the wisdom, the eloquence, the power of the minister, but only to be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a healthy church. Now, the question might come back at this point, well, hang on, what about Billy Graham? Now, some might be tempted to think, well, that, it just doesn't square with reality, because actually, if you look at history, it does look like uh, some people have got enormous power, and, and you know, Billy Graham, I watched the, the Netflix documentary recently, uh, there was nothing else on Netflix. Um, it's actually quite good, um, but anyway... Um, In the second half of the 20th century, Billy Graham was used by God to preach the gospel to more people than any other human in all of history. And Billy Graham personally preached to and saw more people converted to Christ than any other human in all of history. So what doesn't that show that actually powerful people are what the church needs to grow? Well, no, but there's a couple of answers to that. Firstly, actually, Billy was a pretty ordinary man. He was a farmer's son. He wasn't very highly educated, and his preaching was very simple. He preached with great fervency, but he just kept saying, the Bible says, Jesus died on the cross for you. God loves you and wants you to be saved. And people responded. There was nothing actually very clever about his preaching. The power was from God. Secondly, Billy himself knew that he'd been given great gifts, but he knew those gifts came from God. The power didn't actually lie in Billy Graham. The power lay in God. And so Billy prayed and prayed and prayed. And he got others to pray too. The power is with God. 
which is why actually the vast majority of people are converted and nurtured and discipled in very ordinary churches like this one. So let me ask you, what are you waiting for? I know some here are still looking into the gospel, still weighing up whether to put our trust in Jesus Christ. And it's very easy to be put off by the the sheer ordinariness of Christians and especially of Christian ministers. But we're meant to be ordinary. Church is not about extraordinary messengers, but an extraordinary message. The message of salvation. The message that God became a human being and died on a cross to save you from your sins and to give you eternal life. Don't wait to be impressed by a minister because you're not to put your trust in ministers. It's Jesus who's impressive. And so there's nothing to stop you putting your trust in him today. Should be an encouragement to the rest of us too, uh, not to wait before we feel more impressive to share the gospel. It doesn't matter how ordinary you are, how ordinary you feel. It doesn't matter that you're not as clever as some of your friends. You don't need to be impressive to introduce people to Jesus Christ. Just over the river here is a very impressive building, Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, preached the gospel to thousands of people in London. He was so well known that you could say to a cabbie uh, over the river to hear Charlie, and they would know on a Sunday that meant to go to Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Spurgeon. Extraordinary fame and power. How was he converted? In a snowstorm in 1850, he had to take shelter in a little chapel and the minister hadn't been able to get there. So an illiterate farmer stood up and bumblingly shared the gospel from Isaiah and Spurgeon was converted. The most ordinary of means and a man of great intellectual power and great spiritual dynamism became a follower of Jesus. Read the gospels. How ordinary are the disciples? I mean, they're beyond ordinary at times. They are just positively slow and extraordinarily just dull when it comes to working out who Jesus is and trusting him. And yet God uses those 11 ordinary men to turn the world upside down. And the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same power that turned the world upside down with the disciples, the same power that the ordinary farmer used when he explained the gospel to young Spurgeon, that same power is at work here through you and me. As I look out, I can see people who've become Christians, who've come to new life, who've put their trust in Jesus through the ordinary ministry of people here at this church. Believe in the gospel, not in the minister. And live like the power is in God, not in men and women. Work hard for the gospel, trusting that the almighty, extraordinary God is at work through very ordinary people like you and like me. What a wonderful thing to know. Let's pray. Our Father God, we uh, thank you that when we feel very ordinary ourselves, when we uh, look at our church and, and feel how ordinary it looks, thank you that that does not mean extraordinary things cannot happen, for the power lies with you, with Christ crucified and his spirit. And so we pray that we would be confident. We'd be confident to bring people to our church. We would be confident to speak of Christ ourselves, and we would expect to see great things Not because we are great people, but because you are a great and extraordinary God. Amen.